Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. This episode, we have Nikki Mayu, who I have known for a while over Instagram, and I am excited to dive into a fascinating conversation with her um, about her journey and everything and anything that comes up uh, throughout the conversation as usual. And so let's dive in to the conversation with Nikki. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I'm really excited. I'm in my, I've been renovating my office for about four months. Um, and there was like a floorboard that was cracked and I was like falling through it. It was right where my desk was. <laughs> and ever since we moved in, that was the case. And so um, I pulled up the carpet I was going like, I'm going to replace this floorboard. And I noticed there's like multiple floorboards were like half uh-huh. replaced in the past and all cracked. I was like, I'm going to change the floor, ripped up the floor. Then I was like, I'll do the skirting boards around the edge. And then I was like, all these walls are uneven. And like, you know, I'm starting, did you ever watch Marco in the middle? Yes, I did. I was just about to bring that up. Light bulb? And yes. he's like, what do you think I'm doing? And that was my last four months, bit by bit That's changing this office. And I'm finally back in this office and there's nothing. This is why it's all just plain walls. But um this is the first time I've been in setting up things and I'm like, I feel very disorientated. Um, yeah. So, you know, when well, you now just, it's like, a studio. My vibe. Now, yeah. It's, now it's, it's a blank canvas. Crazy. So yeah, I'm excited <laughs> to get some art up, make it look nice. I, I think I'll miss my wife for that. I'm not very good at kind of aesthetic. My aesthetic yeah. would be sit in a room on a rock in the middle. That's like <laughs> as much as you need. You know, I'm very that's, minimalist. That's a look. <laughs> that's like some hy- hyper minimalism, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Probably not good for me. Anyway. That's me, 10.30 p.m. on a Wednesday or whatever. That's where I'm at. How are, how are you? Are you doing well? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm, I mean, pandemic wealth, you know. <laughs> right. This is um, a whole new category of like, you know, right. how people are doing mental health wise. <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't been doing super well um, since my kids have been doing distance learning for a whole semester now. Wow. Um, that's been really challenging, but they are t- like this afternoon starts their fall break. So we get some okay. days off and that feels really good. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's been good. We is had that, our first- Is that like a state mandated thing or is that you that's meant like that's kind of putting that in place or like the fall break or the distance learning, the, the distance learning. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it, well, New Orleans is special. Um, we have a weird charter school and all charter school system and kind of a, a, a weird model. So basically every school or, or charter management organization in new Orleans could technically kind of make their own call to a certain right, extent. Okay. Um, but then there's like, there's some leeway with what they can do given what the city says. And there's some leeway with what the city can do given what the state says at any given time about school. Um, that's my work as well. Uh, like my, my paid work is coaching special education teachers. Um, okay. so I'm very much immersed in all of that and all yeah, of the yeah. that it is right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't envy you. My wife was a teacher for a while and that world is crazy without a pandemic. And, uh, um, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, don't, yeah, <laughs> we don't have kids either. So we like uh, I was joking with her because we will have kids at some point. But I was joking where the pandemic first started, and I was like, "Aren't you so happy?" Like, there's ups and downs where you're like, "Oh, I wish I had kids right now." Yes, those days are more <laughs> for her than for me. I'm not that <laughs> um, woeful of not having kids. But when, when the pandemic kicked off, I was like, "I have never been happier that we haven't started to have kids yet." <laughs> I'm like, "This is not yeah. the time I would want to be having kids." 
It's, so it's I say that without here. rubbing salt in your wound or anything like it. No, it's fine. But it's yeah. Been, yeah it's we, we've had lots of conversations with friends, friends who have kids, friends um, who don't have kids about <clears throat> the range of experiences of what this has mm. been like for, for parents. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's been really, really difficult because there's like this, this sense in which we're all devastated. We're all like, we're devastated by the pandemic. Uh, Americans are devastated by the state of our country. Um, and all of this, all of the things, all the systemic oppression that's happening and Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the rights that are being dangled in front of us or, or rather being threatened to be yanked away. Um, if we had them to begin with and, but parents have this extra layer of like experiencing that, but then um, you can't just go like, you can't just go like lock yourself in your room and cry for right. three hours. About there's it. human can't. beings that will die if you don't actually yes, take there's, care of shit, there's, right? um, <laughs> There are human beings you have to like sit with that and make some kind of peace about it and, and then go make dinner for two mm. picky eaters. <laughs> you know, like you have to, uh, it's a whole different sense of like trying to compartmentalize it. And then there's like so much, there's so much parent guilt that you have if you can't compartmentalize it well enough. Um, and if you notice that your kids start to pick up on your anxiety or your depression or your like um, your struggle with what's happening, um, then you get like guilt and shame that on top of that. So it's, but we have a really great support system. Personally, we have a really lovely like pandemic pod of, of people and a really beautiful, uh, mostly queer chosen family um, that lives close by. So that part has been really encouraging. Kind of gives me a glimpse of like the world I hope that we're building towards. Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's beautiful. That's exciting. Maybe we'll probably get into that at some point, I'm sure. Um, But yeah. In fact, that's where my four-year-old is right now, is with our two best friends who live two minutes away. Um, Just texted them this morning, was like, can I, can I bring Lucas over to you while I try to record this thing? Um, So he's hanging out there right now. That's the kind of friends you want. Yes. Kind of friends you can say, "Hey, would you like a four-year-old for two hours?" <laughs> exactly, for real. And I'm only going to pay you in like treats and friendship. <laughs> That's all I want payment in anyway. Realistically, right? That's yeah. all we want in life is some treats and friendship. <laughs> treats and friendship. <laughs> Oh, I love it. That that's the sol- uh, that's the solution to our capitalist woes. If the, there is extremes and corruption within correct capitalism, most of it could be solved if we just change the free market to orientate around treats and friendship. I think. Um, yeah, it's it might work better than the gold standard. That's certainly not who working. Knows? Out I mean, now. that doesn't work. You know? right? Does that exist? <laughs> um, that's yeah. so funny. Uh, Nikki, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited um, to get to know you a bit more. And we've interacted a little bit on Instagram, not too much. Um, but I, I always love kind of tracking with stuff that you're posting. And, and I love seeing, we've got so many people that I guess are mutual people that we follow on Instagram. Yeah, I'll see your sure. comments on people's stuff as well. And I'm like, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I just, uh, I've loved kind of like traveling this road with you kind of in the midst crossing paths here and there um but i'm really looking forward to getting to know you a bit more um i'm sure some people listen to this podcast that kind of run in those same instagram circles probably know who you are but a lot of people probably don't have any idea who you are so i wonder if you could maybe start just kind of giving us a overview of like 
who are you? I mean, I say that and it's like such a vague, open-ended, yeah. could go anywhere, <laughs> could take the whole time at a podcast or could be summed up in a sentence if you can uh, try, I don't know. Um, there's no rules to describing yourself or, or, you know, you don't feel you have to box yourself into anything or, or anything like that. But I, I guess if you could share a little bit about who you are, we can uh, take it from there yeah. and I'll, I'll probably eke out more. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> for sure. Um, I actually love the open-endedness of that question because often you can you can find out things, you can learn things about how people perceive themselves and what marginalizations or privileges they hold by mm. by what they share when you simply ask, like, who are you? Um, we do this, uh, I've done this activity in trainings before called an identity web, where you list, you, you self-report like as many identifiers as you want um, and build out your identity web. And then you kind of talk with a group of people about um, what you chose to include and you, you know, you share what you're, what you're comfortable sharing. And then usually there's some kind of like a uh, exemplar identity web mm-hmm. and without fail, there's always something that's like illuminated to me when I see all of the different identifiers that like the facilitators thought of. Um, and it's illuminating like what I thought of first and what I thought of last and what I didn't even mm. think of at all. And so typically the things that like we don't report or that don't spontaneously come to mind when we think of like, who are we um, are places where we hold privilege. So for a long time, right. years ago, when I first did that exercise, like I didn't, I didn't put white um, because that is an area where I hold privilege. And that is an area where society has told me um, incorrect incorrectly that that's like default or that's not sure, that's not yeah. a thing that I have to claim um, or have to think about very much. Um, so through doing exercises like that and doing a lot of like reflection, um, yeah, now I start now I start saying uh, that I'm white, I'm a cis woman, I'm 34 and I'm a lifelong resident of New Orleans. Um, I'm a parent. I have two kids and I am, you know, relative to the content of this podcast, I'm an ex-fundamentalist. So I was raised generally, I was raised in a couple different faith expressions or or church cultures underneath the general um, American evangelical umbrella. So um, my, my dad had a a Christian salvation experience as a young person in his twenties. And that was, I believe in like a a self-proclaimed like non-denominational church. Um, So he was always kind of comfortable going to any given church. And then my mom was raised Lutheran. And so I've attended Lutheran churches. I've attended non-denominational churches. I kind of formed, I think the heaviest part of my like Christian identity in in a Southern Baptist youth group as a middle schooler and a high schooler. And then as I got a little bit older and started um, really like being a devout Christian in my own right uh, as a young person, I gravitated more towards charismatic churches Mm -hmm. and was heavily involved in an assemblies of God um, ministry in campus ministry in college. Um, So those are a couple things about me. Um, 
that's quite the medley of uh of yeah. christian experiences i mean like you said yeah. all within this kind of broad overarching kind of american evangelical but you know southern baptist youth group to like very kind of passionate kind of in that assemblies of god world those are two different mm-hmm. groups you know <laughs> even yeah. under the same umbrella very different groups you know generally speaking not the best of friends um no, so they're yeah, not fascinating and my dad actually had um one of my fonder like conversations i have a lot of fond conversations with my dad and we have a good relationship but i remember when i started getting involved in the assemblies of god campus ministry um he had this very like candid and real conversation with me where he expressed like a little bit of concern about that, about my charismaticness, And, um, I think, I think I had told, I was telling him that like the church I was attending put a heavy emphasis on like the, the, um, gifts of the spirit and speaking in tongues. And I was like exploring that and I was not whatever I was talking about it. And he like cautioned me in this really like beautiful human conversation where he was like, sweetie, you just need to know that like, there, there are people that obsess over their, like, whether they think God wants them to take their next step with their left foot or their right foot and people that will pray over that decision for hours at a time and will, um, really make themselves miserable doing it. And he was like, you don't, you don't need to do that. Like, that's not the relationship that God wants to have with you, um, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And, um, and at the time, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. Um, but now, <laughs> many years later, where I'm I'm not a Christian at all, and I'm like happily an agnostic person, um, happy to not have answers to most of life's biggest questions. Um, now I find that really beautiful, and yeah, and I think yeah. about it often um, in a variety of contexts, not just religious anymore, but just that idea of. Um, obsessing over the minutia of life mm. and how we can get caught up in it yeah. so that's yeah. fascinating what a, what a what a beautiful sentiment as well because there's so many ways that conversation can go and so many um angles to address that um from as as a concerned parent or you know if you can step out of like the the very intimate and very personal relationship that is you can just look at anyone that's kind of like in a more um conventional kind of like church backgrounds watching their loved one going off the deep end into kind of charismania and all these kind of people that are seeking signs and you know spending half an hour waiting for their prophecy to see if they should go left or right and um i've seen plenty of conversations not be so gracious and loving and kind and careful um yeah. and and considered you know um and so yeah it's, it's beautiful and, and it's funny how we do look back and we go oh yeah actually yeah there's a lot of good stuff in that <laughs> at the time you're like well you don't know anything dad you know like, yeah um, <laughs> um but yeah yeah when we when we do when my family does manage to actually talk about something uh we usually rise to the occasion and end up being pretty kind to one another that's awesome um So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of my, um, my religious, like cultural history of where I came from. Mm -hmm. Um, I also just to lay out the story a little bit more, um, out of, after graduating college and being super involved in campus ministry, um, I kept getting pulled like further and further 
into more leftist and progressive and social justice warrior type Christianity. I read Shane Claiborne and was obsessed um, and had a lot of notions about wanting to like live in an intentional Christian community and do church like, like it was meant to be done and like they did in acts and all of this, all this stuff that is really anyone in the world read Shane Claiborne and like, I don't know, have a spare room in their house or like, you know, or not want uh-huh. to like just sell everything and go and live in like, you know, like a church together on a church floor that you rent out because it closed or, you know, I don't know, like, like that guy just yeah. inspires on a level that like, <laughs> I don't really care what kind of Christian you are. You read him and you're going to like, yeah, yeah, this is how Jesus would want me to live. So yeah, I think awesome. it, for me, it was a lot of it is, um, cringy for me to think about now because a lot of it was wrapped up in a lot of white saviorism Mm -hmm. and a lot of, um, uh, yeah, just a lot of like harm done, um, in a lot of ways. But I think what I was, I think what drew me to that sort of Christian expression out of college, um, was the very beginning, the very seeds of just trying to reconcile, my religious beliefs with my, like my actual inner voice and what, how I actually thought human beings should be treating one another and how I actually thought, um, a moral life could be lived or a kind life could be lived. Uh, so I was desperately like trying to fit those pieces together and, and tried to do it that way for a while. Um, that's how I met my that's how I met my husband, Mark. Okay. Um, cause he was also, he was already living the, the Christian punk commune life in Nashville. And we connected, uh, after he like read a blog that I wrote, trying to start up a similar thing in new Orleans. And he is from the new Orleans area. Um, one parish over Louisiana has parishes, not counties. Um, it's, if it sounds very Catholic, it's because it is, um, <laughs> So yeah, we connected that way and started talking. Um, and then we started talking about zombie movies and instantly fell in love. And uh, for the first part, first couple years of our marriage, we did that life in a couple mm. different incarnations. So at one time we had a, a double shotgun house in downtown New Orleans um, in Treme in a historically a very important historically black neighborhood um, that I want to say that up front and acknowledge. Um, and we had like 14, like <laughs> it's like 14 gutter punk Christian kids crammed into that house with all of their rescued pit bulls and all of their, uh, all of their car hearts and all of their me without you albums. And we so funny. did like a house church Um we did a lot of things. And then we kind of scaled that back as we started to deconstruct basically. Mm. Um, and eventually it wasn't a house church anymore. Eventually it was just like a couple, like a smaller group of folks living together intentionally. Um, and eventually it just wasn't anymore. Um, and eventually Mark, Mark, who was an ordained pastor, um, changed careers as we deconstructed and became a tattooer. Um, yeah. And over, over the slow course of our twenties, um, we had two kids, we had that community house, like be a thing and then fall apart. 
uh, we left the the final church that we were a part of. Um, I came out as queer, as pansexual, and we eventually departed Christianity entirely by the end of our 20s. Mm. Um, so now we're 34 and 35 and a good a good half decade into that deconstruction process. Um, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think that's the cliff that's, notes version. That's a lot to be, there's a lot it's of transitions lot. <laughs> and, and lots of uh, shifts and turns. And, and it sounds like you, uh, from listening to the cliff notes, it sounds like you're the sort of person that um, actively does seek some sort of authenticity. Like uh, generally speaking, in people that I come across that are constantly, not constantly, but fairly often have these uprooted moments of going, nah, this isn't for me. I'm going for this. Nah, this isn't for me. I'm going for this. Is that fair to say that you were quite a driven person to try and find some authentic kind of spirituality or like what, what was driving those changes behind kind of swinging from maybe your, your family's tradition into that kind of Southern Baptist. I mean, maybe that's just the youth group. That's where the youth were. I don't know. Uh, but then from that into kind of charismatic from that into the kind of the progressive, you, you talked a little bit about that, that tension of like, you know, not really feeling that this is what Christianity is about. Like what is it about yeah. you that kind of has led you on that path because a lot of people don't right I mean a lot of people end up in Southern Baptist Church and they die in one and a lot of people end up in the charismatic church and they die in one right and these people yeah. are hit by a bus three weeks later they're like 60 years later you know they they, they die surrounded by their grandkids who are all also charismatic and they all are happy and um, so what is it about you that you feel like has caused you to go through these kind of um, quite um frequent changes or, or at least yeah. often? Um, I don't, I don't think I know at the end of the day. Um, I've asked myself that question a lot. Like, um, I don't know. I know I can make guesses at it. Um, sure. I know that I'm an inquisitive person and I know that I do, I think from childhood in Christianity, out of Christianity, all of it, um, yeah, I think I do really value authenticity. Um, I don't like small talk. I like to immediately get to like <laughs> the meatiest part of a conversation or um, fully interested in knowing like someone's deepest soul desire within the first 10 minutes of meeting them. Um, that's always been a part of my personality. And, and I think... Yeah, I think that I was always just looking for a way for my inner voice and my inner world to match to match how I move outwardly through the world, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So there was always within fundamentalism, um, super early on as a child, I was always the person like asking the uncomfortable questions in Sunday school. Um I remember asking my dad at like age six ish, if women could be pastors or leaders um, and hearing that they could not and being really upset um, mm. and like crying. And um, I was always asking uncomfortable questions in Sunday school. I was always deeply unsatisfied with pat answers or incomplete answers or answers that felt deflective. Um, mm. And I, well, I haven't talked about this at all yet, but um, 
but I'm a writer and that's like a core part of my identity. And I've written as long as I can remember. It's, it was my first love and my first hobby and um, my first way of expressing myself that felt really good. So I've always been highly attuned to language and I feel like I have a pretty good meter for, for hearing people's bullshit and hearing, um, hearing the layers of rhetoric or hearing the connotations or why somebody might choose this word as opposed to this other word and what that means and what that says. Um, and I really wanted to get to a place where I felt like I didn't have to do that sort of policing of my own language and my own thought life and my own actions um, and didn't have to police the way I move through the world to conform to a, a set of dogma that I was increasingly unconvinced by anyway. So it never felt great. Um, lots of things about fundamental fundamentalism never felt great. And then as I kept moving through these different iterations of Christianity, trying to find a place that felt great, um, not only did it not, but then I also became less and less convinced by it in the first place. Um, mm. So like, I think exploring biblical inerrancy was probably like the first theological pillar to fall for me. Okay. Um, so when was that, do you think? Like what, what, what kind of like, where about was, were you at that point? That was probably like in the, in the, in the punk Christian commune. Okay. <laughs> era. Yeah, yeah. I think that was around there. Yeah. Um, and like, and being a queer person also had a lot to do with it. I knew, I knew that no matter what theological gymnastics I could manage to do, um, I would never be able to reconcile that part of my identity and stay mm. in a faith expression that was accepted by my family and accepted by, um, by the communities I was in. Sure. At was that, that a part of your identity that you were, were you were always aware of that to some degree yeah. or had you, yeah. Okay. Cause I, I know a lot of people manage to deeply suppress that stuff. You know, when you grow up in that very religious environment, there is a kind of like a, a protection mechanism, I guess, that keeps you from like uh, the family, the community, whatever, this is not going to go well for me if I accept this on any level. So let's just ignore this as much as possible. Yeah. Um, I, I had someone on recently that was talking about that. And so, um, but that was always kind of on the radar. Even in your youth group, Southern Baptist days, you were like, what's going on here? Because I'm assuming they weren't teaching very pro-LGBTQ no. affirming uh, messages. <laughs> no, um, no, that was definitely, yes, there's lots of folks that deeply repress that. And particularly folks that are, um, that are, that are cis women or that are assigned female at birth, um, socialized as women, um, it can get, I think, even a little murkier trying to understand whether you are or aren't attracted to people of the same gender because there's like culturally, culturally female friendships are really romantic in nature a lot of mm -hmm. times in a way that like, in the way that, uh, that like patriarchy and and toxic masculinity does not allow men to right, be right. romantic with each other, even in their, in a platonic friendship way. Um, so sometimes I think it can, like, it can blur the lines a lot for us. Mm. And I know I've connected with so, so, so many 
other cis women who, um, who didn't realize that they were bisexual or queer in, in some sense until like deep into adulthood. Um, but for me, for whatever reason, I just, I definitely always knew that I was, um, I remember thinking about it for the first time when, again, when I was like six ish, seven ish, somewhere around there. And, uh, I remember at some point my parents having some kind of conversation with me talking about like, about just marriage and what you should look for in a partner, in a, in a husband when you grow Mm -hmm. up and they, um, they talked a lot again, like very (laughs) things I highly agree with now, uh, just not for the same reasons, but talked about how you should find someone that has the same values. This is not the language they used. They would say like someone who is just as passionate about the Lord as you, um, someone who is equally yoked um, under God's authority, someone who um, is interested in the same things as you and someone whose company and companionship you enjoy. And like, that's what's important in finding like a lifelong mate. And immediately my thought was like, well, if that's true, if that's what I'm looking for, couldn't I just as easily find those qualities in a girl as I could in a boy? Oops, sorry, that's a phone alarm that shouldn't go off. Sorry. Um, yes. Yeah, so I was like, couldn't I easily find that in a girl as, as I could a boy? Um, and the answer was no, you cannot do that. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, check. Got it. That's a thing I can't that's do. Funny. But I pretty quickly realized that that was, if left to my own devices, that's a thing I would do. Um, mm. And a big, a big component, this is not true for everybody, not by a long shot, but a big component of my queer identity is, is being pretty gender impartial um, and being fairly like demisexual is another term that, that is connected to this idea in the sense that typically someone's personality is usually the thing I find most like hot about them or most attractive about a person. Um, That's how I connect with people. um, And that's what I find attractive in folks. And so as I got older and older, um, that was put to the test and very much the results were in that, yep, I could be attracted to pretty much anyone of any gender if I found them interesting and cool and I enjoyed their company. Um, Mm. So yeah, that was something that I knew was not acceptable. And because I'm, because I'm pansexual and attracted to any given gender, I was also attracted to, to, to boys. Um, and so for people who are pansexual or bisexual under fundamentalism, that can be, that can be a really confusing thing as well because then the messages that you're getting about how like your queerness, your, your, your struggle with same sex attraction is something outside of you. It's a demonic influence. It is a product of the fall and something you just need to reject that can, that can like feel true for a while because you know, you're like, okay, well I am attracted to some boys. So I guess I just have to go with that. And I just have to like, white knuckle it the rest of my life and not engage with these other attractions. Right. Um, 
And so that's what I did for a really long time. And I described, I always like, I guess from high school on would had confided in a small, very small number of people around me, depending on the season of my life that I struggled with same sex attraction or I, uh, yeah, struggled with homo- with homosexual thoughts or what, however I would have said it back then. Um, and that kind of evolved into a stage of like post-college in the, in the Christian punk commune days, getting to a place where I accepted, like, I am actually queer. Like I am for whatever it's worth, like, this is not a thing outside of me. This is a thing that is innately within me. And I don't know what God thinks about that, but that is what it is. Um, and so that, that era of my life, I connected to some other queer Christians who sadly, like a, a lot of them seemed to feel that they could accept that that was innately something inside them as well. And that, that, that the consequence of that or the, the next step for them is to just commit to a life of celibacy. And that would be right. the, the path that that would be the way that they could honor God with their, with their life. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I guess by that point I was married, um, married to a wonderful man that I am very much in love with. So I knew I didn't have to do that. Um, and it continued to be just kind of this private thing, even while my, my friend and community group was increasingly gayer and gayer. I live in new Orleans. Um, it's a, it's a very queer friendly city inside of is a very queer friendly bubble inside of a not queer friendly region. And so there was a, there was a moment, a season of time in my life where I was going to our like house church, our like little punk house church where we were doing Sunday night Bible study. And then two nights later, I would go see all of my best friends who were all drag Kings at the gay bar on bourbon street and be in the audience. And I was their photographer for a while. Um, and I would just, I would just lived in that tension for a while sure. um, until really what I think what cemented it, what pushed me towards wanting to come out more fully to, and push me to, to take that next step of like, this is actually deeply intrinsically a part of me and it's perfectly fucking fine. Um, was now I'm blanking on the year, but whenever the gay marriage decision happened in the United States and that became legalized, right. <clears throat> I remember, I can't remember 2012, maybe 12, 2011, 13? somewhere around there, that window, that window. Um, I remember going to this like spontaneous rally that, that formed in, in the French quarter to celebrate and going with my, with Mark and with Eleanor, who was a baby. So it must've been 2012 or 2013. And, and feeling this, like this sense of longing or a little bit of sadness that like, I was here celebrating, but I, I wanted people to know that this was my community too. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted, I wanted to be out and I wanted to be 
able to celebrate this as something that has like deep personal meaning for me as well. Um, in a way that I wasn't able to up until that point. So after that, um, slowly but surely, I came out to more people. I'd already come out to Mark. Um, it was no surprise to him. <laughs> he was he had the like the best reaction of a partner possible, um, which was just something I like hyped myself up to to come out to him. Um, and I don't remember the exact words we used, but it was the gist was like yeah, I'm, I'm queer. I'm bi, whatever I said at the time. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Or like, yeah, I know. Uh, it was just very, (laughs) that's cool. Um, which was really lovely and beautiful and not an experience that everyone gets. Um, yeah. So then started coming out to more and more people and that kind of like accepting my queerness and becoming a parent, I think were the two biggest driving forces that pushed me like entirely out the the boat yeah. of Christianity eventually. Um, Cause yeah. apparently when I, apparently like when it comes time to look my four-year-old in the face, which is the, the age I was when I prayed my first prayer of salvation, apparently when it comes time to like tell a four-year-old that they're going to go to hell if they don't pray this prayer, apparently I'm not going to do it. Um, yeah. It just, wow. when push came to shove, I was like, no, this is not a thing that I am even remotely sure enough of to inflict the trauma the that trauma. I know it's going to do on you, innocent yeah. child. No, absolutely. That's yeah. wild. So up until that point of you kind of um, coming out, you were still very much in that Christian world, probably more within that kind of somewhat progressive, I don't know what camp you would put, Shane Claiborne, if there's camps, I don't know. I'm very bad yeah. at this. Um, but that kind of world, like, um, but there wasn't really much of a box for you to be, okay, no, there really is an opportunity for me to stay within this Christian world. But um, if I do, I still have to teach my kids, you're going to burn forever if you don't say this prayer. If I do, I can't really truly be out and proud and go, and there's nothing wrong with that. If I wasn't married, I could go into a same-sex relationship. And mm-hmm it doesn't matter. God doesn't matter. Like the, there just wasn't those kind of opportunities. It sounds like it, it in front of you to kind of explore. Um, is, is that fair? Um, I think so. I, I think I was in a community both in our little, like local little group of friends and then in our wider church network community. I think mm-hmm. I was in a community largely consisting of a lot of other millennials who were also secretly deconstructing. So by the time I was in that space, uh, rhetorically in sermons, in, in conversations, like it already was a place where like hell was not emphasized. We're not talking much about that we are focusing on like the goodness of God and the goodness that God brings to our life. And like, we're pretty uncomfortable with this concept, but, but not enough to publicly denounce it. Right. Um, and it, it, sweep under the rug stuff. Let's just yeah. leave that there. We're not overly that confident about how we would go about denouncing that and it would cause way too much problems. So let's ignore yeah. it and just focus on what we're really loving and doing and works well. Yeah, yeah, it, it seems was, like a pretty common response for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people early in their deconstruction as well, when they're kind of 
wanting to hold on to some form of Christianity, Jesus, God, but really not sure with, uh, crap, what do I do with the bits in the Bible that says God's like, you know, pro like raping young women or genocide. There is a very much like, I could just push that onto the rug and like, just keep going for now. Yeah. And at some point in the deconstruction, it maybe bubbles up, but on the whole, it's like, we could just, just a little bit to the side and be fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's pretty, I, I guess I'd just say that's probably a fairly common, I think even in very fundamentals, groups True. of the church yeah. do sweep stuff under the rug that we're like uh we don't we're not able to kind of we just don't have the right to denounce this but we're not going to really live like that's true so let's yeah. you know whatever <laughs> we all yeah. do i guess but that's um, i think it is really common um and that was definitely the case for us and that was the i think it was a similar attitude towards um towards lgbtqia plus acceptance was just like, mm. like we want to be with you, but we don't know for sure. And it's terrifying because there's a lot of people that are going to be upset if we, you know, come out and give some kind of definitive stance. And, and it was a lot, I don't know, there, there seemed to be a lot of focus on putting, putting the onus back on the doubter, the inquisitor, whoever was mm. deconstructing to just like, search their heart and come to their own conclusions between them and God about it. And I think, I think to some extent, that's a little bit of a handoff by, by the church community where it's like, we don't, we don't want to engage with this. And if we just tell you to go and get right with God about it, then we're kind of off the hook with whatever you decide. Um, I think that's like a, a pretty critical read and a kinder read is, that that deep personal relationship with God was a huge focus of that community. Sure. And no one wanted, none of these folks like wanted to go around Bible bashing each other. They didn't want, they didn't want to give you a definitive answer about something so high stakes because they were terrified probably on the inside about all the implications of that for their own right. life. Well, they were at the mercy of their, I mean, like, I think at the end of the day, sometimes if, if, if X is true, then Y is true. And I don't like Y, but X is true. And, yes. You know, whatever it is. Well, so that's a really good way just to not that. talk about Y because I, mm -hmm. I don't want to have to fall back on, you know, so whatever it is, if you're a leader in the church, right. I mean, how many churches are um, welcoming of the LGBTQIA plus community and say, yes, you're welcome. Come on in. Mm -hmm. But please don't really overly talk about this, engage in this, show up with your partner. And it's like, yeah. because at a certain point, you're going to make things so uncomfortable that people are going to ask a question. People are going to say something. People are going to whatever. And then we have to fall back on our Bible, which is the word of God. And we cannot question or we have to read in a certain yeah. context. Or, and that says it's wrong. And so then we're going to have to, you know, so there's this thing of like, could we just, leave it in this gray space as one of the things I love about church yeah. clarity and how they're pushing for, can we get rid of some of these gray spaces and can we have clear, even if you are, no, we are not affirming that is a better position than, Oh, come on in and find out three years in that we're not affirming of you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, 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 we are at the mercy. I think a lot of the times of our undergirding kind of like absolutes, whatever it is, maybe the Bible is the word of God or God is X or yeah. whatever. I love church clarity's work for the same reason. And honestly, that kind of, you know, for, for most of my 
Christianity, that's me too. I'm talking about being on the receiving end of it, but I was also dishing it out. Like those are the type of vague answers I would give people when they talk to me about it um, for the same reasons. And, and it got to be, I guess, like you touched on earlier, that, that drive for authenticity, it got to be so icky to me, like so um, distasteful to me to hear myself being inauthentic with people saying things that I know were towing a party line or being vague enough that I didn't have to. Um, and I really wanted to get underneath that and figure out like what was under it. Like why, why was I shouldering this religion that was so antithetical to my actual values, to my actual inner voice um, why was I doing it? And I, at the end of the day, the place I got to was like, really the only reason I'm doing this is, is because of an abject fear of hell. Right. Um, and when I realized that, when I realized that I didn't even, you know, after like, after I stopped praying, um, as an experiment, you know, let's just see what happens. Stopped praying, mm-hmm. stopped like regularly reading my Bible, Um, I kept waiting to miss it, waited, waited, waited two months, three months, six months, a year. And I never missed it. Mm. And, and moreover, any, any shreds of that, like personal relationship with God that I did miss, I realized were not God at all. It was just me. It was just my inner voice. And my inner life, my, my own personality. Um, and so I, I realized like, I didn't miss the goodness of God that I was supposed to be drawn to his kindness leads us to repentance, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't miss that. I didn't see that. And all I had left was Pascal's wager and just being terrified that if I made this wrong choice, I would, I would experience eternal conscious torment and be separated from my loved ones. And I was like, well, that's this is kind of a biggie to be fair. <laughs> it is a biggie. Um, the big kernel, the last one. <laughs> but for me, like it got to a place where the, the wager shifted for me. And I was like, no, actually, like, if that's really what is going to happen, that's God's issue. That's messed up he's got to figure himself out an answer for that. Cause that's wrong. Uh, that's like morally reprehensible if that's really true. And if it's not, then the real Pascal's wager is missing out on your whole damn life Yeah, because you signed up for an inauthentic version of it out of abject fear. Yeah. And I, I got to a point where I find just inching up to it, inching up to it where I finally, was like, yeah, no, I, I've jumped over the hurdle. I'm not willing to do that anymore. Mm. Um, and that, that felt really, really good. It, it didn't have, there wasn't like a light bulb moment where it happened, but I felt it happening over the course of a right. year or so. Wow. Got more and more comfortable referring to myself as an ex-Christian. Um, mm. And, and now I'm really, really comfortable with that label. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, like, I mean, in that process of kind of gradually shifting, like, 
how did you deal with that fear? Because that fear can come up in a lot of different ways. But I mean, um, I think most Christians don't understand this. I, I think this is what's fascinating to me is I, I think back to when I was a very passionate um very passionate Christian in a very conventional sense. And I believed, you know, if you hadn't said the prayer, you'd go to hell or whatever. And I would genuinely be like, I want to reach people. I want to get them saved. I want to get them out of this terrible, dire strait where they're going to go to hell. But I didn't live with any real fear that I was ever going to go to hell because I had said the prayer. I did live a pretty, I mean, I was yeah. like, I don't know, addicted to porn and masturbating because I was like, you know, 16 year old boy or whatever, you know, like all sorts of different things in the yeah. church as well. Good God. Or so I had things where I'd be like, oh, I'm a terrible Christian, but I was still a Christian. I was still in. Yeah. Um, and I think most Christians don't really engage with that concept of there's a giant God in the sky that knows all things and is all powerful and is holding a huge stick and is really ready to whack you with it. Um, the second you, you, you turn out to be wrong. It's only when people start to let go of their Christianity and stop kind of identifying in that or stop ticking all the boxes and go, no, I'm kind of done with the ticks and I'm big X's on the box actually, that suddenly there's this moment of like, oh, actually it's hard to completely dissolve that belief that there might be a God and there might be a hell and I might go there if I'm wrong. Like that's a, that for me was a, uh, was kind of a gradual process. And a bit like you, I kind of came to the point where I was like, you know what, if that's what God's like, I'm assuming he'll be in hell with me. Like Mm -hmm. screw that guy. You know what I mean? Like that's basically my premise was like, well, screw that guy. I'll go to hell because it sounds more moral. It sounds more loving and kind if that's what heaven's like, you know? Um, Absolutely. And, and so that took me a, a, on some level a while. Um, but I know for a lot of people, that is a very long, stretched out, kind of torturous period. Mm-hmm. Did, did you have kind of like fear kind of like messing with you, grabbing you in that process of kind of like slowly tiptoeing out of being a Christian, but not fully letting go of all that kind of stuff? What did that look like for you? Yeah, I did. I do. I still occasionally, um, I, I also have, I have to varying degrees of like this interferes or does not in my daily life. I have obsessive compulsive disorder and I've had it since a child. It's very religiously informed also. Mm. Um, so I, every once in a while, if I'm like really under high stress, I might have like a little mini panic attack about it. Like it's still, it's not completely gone, but the way I approach it is different now. Like the certainty, I have some kind of bedrock of certainty now where I'm like, you're feeling a thing. You're having a panic attack. This has happened to your whole life. You know that, you know that if you can ride this out for an hour, you're going to feel slightly better. You're going to go watch like some comfort TV or play with your kids. And then that's usually the game I play with myself is I'm like, I'm going to give myself a time limit. And if I still feel this bad in an hour, then I'll let myself panic about it. Like let myself, you know, Um, and that usually can help me through it in a kind of mental trickery way. So I still occasionally have that. I had one of my worst panic attacks about it. Um, How long ago? Four years ago, three or four years ago where I, for the first time since leaving Christianity, I got approached, I, (laughs) I got approached at a coffee shop by two college campus ministry youngins, um, who tried to contact evangelize me in the same exact way that I used to 
do contact evangelism with people. I was about to say you got you got approached by yourself like by myself. 10 years earlier. Yes, I really <laughs> did. I really did. Um, oh. And so they led in with like <laughs> as soon as they as soon as they started talking to me, um, I knew what was happening. I was like, "This is it." I knew this was going to come back to haunt me one day, and here it is. And I'm just this I'm, is karma. <laughs> yeah, this is it. And I was feeling pretty good that day. And I was like, I'm going to try to engage with this. I'm going to try to have a conversation with these people. Hmm. And the first thing, (laughs) the first thing they asked me was like, if I knew much about like the neighborhood and the, because they were helping plant a church in the neighborhood. Um, And I think the first thing I did was fuss at them about, (laughs) about being, I was like, this is a black neighborhood and you are two white college students that are from out of state and you need to address why you feel like you were the people that need to plant a new church in this neighborhood. And that's what you need to do first. Um, and that was a lot out the gate for me. And so we talked about racism for a while. Um, but then it shifted at some point into like what my personal, what, what my personal relationship or lack thereof was with Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. our Lord and savior. And so I kind of gave them my whole story we talked, um, they asked me, they asked me a lot about like, about being queer. They wanted to know a lot about language, what language I use for that. They were very scared to say queer, which was kind of endearing. I think they still thought they thought it was like a slur. Mm. Um, and then, but really the heart of the conversation was like, look, and I, I went away from this after I processed this whole experience, I turned this this uh, experience into a poem that's in my chapbook that's coming out this winter um, called the age of accountability, because like the, the flashpoint of the conversation was, I was like, look, I have, like, if you're saying that, that God allows people to go to hell who don't believe in him, when, when are they old enough to go? Mm. And they were like, well, they gave the answer that I figured they were going to give, which was like, well, whenever you're old enough to really know right from wrong is when you are at risk of going to hell. Um, That kind of, that idea of that like nebulous age of accountability. What a vague concept. Like three-year-olds know right from wrong on some level, in some ways, in some contexts. Yes. Uh, But I wouldn't want them to be my judge, you know, (laughs) like or whatever. You know, like this is such a weird kind of concept of like, oh, when they know right, I'm like, oh, so what on earth does that mean, right? Yeah, it is. It's well, again, it's one of it's one of those rhetorical tactics of edging back from the implications of a of a messed up piece of doctrine. Mm. So I was like, okay, cool. So when they know right from wrong, and I was like, okay, I have a five year old. I have a five-year-old who definitely knows right from wrong. I was like, she has bold-faced lied to me. Bold-faced lied to me. She knew it was wrong. She did it anyway. She wasn't even all that remorseful, honestly. I was like, so you are telling me if my five-year-old walks out the door today and gets hit by a bus, she's going to hell. And they were like, well, I, I don't know about that. Um, which is good. I would hope, you know, that's a very human reaction. Yeah. Um, but they were like, I can't, 
I can't imagine that she really knows right from wrong. And anyway, so that's kind of how the conversation wrapped up was like, we couldn't come to any sort of uh, understanding about that. And it's funny that the thing that they're going to challenge is not, you know, that God would send a child to hell or any of these things. The thing they have to challenge is, well, you clearly don't know your child that well. Probably it doesn't <laughs> really know right or wrong. That's the only grounds they have to yeah. like go, well, there's something wrong in this equation. Oh, it's probably the mother understanding her kid. That's probably what's That's wrong probably here. the thing. That's yes, the thing sure. that's the problem here. <laughs> the lady with tattoos that says she's queer. Yeah. Definitely. That's the <laughs> equation that we can't add in. <laughs> like, Yeah. No, that's. Oh, gosh. That's definitely true. That's so, yeah, that when I came home, I was super proud of myself of how I handled the conversation. Um, I felt like, I felt like it was a good conversation, but I made the mistake of giving them my phone number because they asked for it and I'm, and I'm too polite. Um, and non-confrontational at the time I've gotten better. You wrong numbered them, you know, (laughs) I I should have. And then they sent me a text of like a bunch of resources, a bunch of like PDFs about health theology and like why I should be convinced about health theology. And that's where it all kind of crumbled because I was, you know, not as many years deep into my deconstruction as I am now. And I had a full blown panic attack about it. And I was like, yeah, I had a whole, it was a bad evening, but that was the last really terrible one I had. Um, and I got through it just the same way that I described. I called Mark and I told him what happened and we had a good conversation where he reminded me of, of a lot of things um, that I know to be true Hmm. and just kind of waited it out and it did eventually go away. Um, So yeah, it's not like it never comes up, but my, my toolkit for dealing with it has grown and my perception of it, has grown. So when in the first part, when it would come up, the fear would come up, it was, my perception was, oh my gosh, is this a moment of clarity? Right. Is, I mean, you're, you know, you, is you this have a this moment? opportunity to gaslight yourself in a sense of like, yes. oh, this is the, God's reaching out to me. And actually yeah. all my experience is not correct. And he's finally yeah. broken through the veil. Satan's grasp has been loosened or is so, I mean, that's the Christian explanation of what would have probably happened. Right. Finally, God has broken enough prayers for you that those PDFs that have been texted Mm -hmm. to you finally, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's how I perceived it at first. And that was bolstered by the charismatic doctrine. Cause that was Mm. especially true. That's certainly how God would reach out to me is through an impulsive flash of intense feeling and fear. Mm. Um, and so I, I used to be scared that it was a moment of clarity, but now I understand it as, yeah, it's, it's normal and natural to feel fear at scary things. And this is a scary concept. It's a scary concept you were raised with yeah. it's a scary concept that you perseverated on and obsessed over because you have an anxiety disorder and that makes sense. And so we're just going to sit with it and like, give it some space and, and like see what happens in a little while. And I think that was kind of the, that's one of my biggest post post Christianity takeaway and post, well, I still have OCD, but like um, 
biggest takeaway from like having OCD and being a Christian (laughs) was I just don't, I do not trust impulses anymore. Mm. Generally speaking, whatever the impulse is, I don't have a lot of trust in momentary flashes of high emotion because my lived experience has shown me that most of the time those experiences are not correct or not helpful or not healthy for me. Mm. And I feel like I have arrived at whatever sense of truth I may have about the world is through the long game of like what I feel and what I experience after the highs and lows, after the really big jumps on the graph. Um, It's the stuff that it's, you know, if I've been feeling it for two years, then I trust it. If it is a terrifying thought that hits me in the middle of a church service, I don't trust it. Mm. If it's a, if it's a like weird intrusive thought that, uh, that hits me as part of my OCD, I don't trust that anymore either. If it's a, if it's a like obsession, um, just a high energy, like obsession with something that I love. I don't trust that either. Like I have to wait and see what's there when the dust settles, Mm. if that makes sense. Um, and that has, that's proven to be like a way of navigating the world that has led me out of those things. And to some, to some pretty good baseline of like knowing myself and knowing how I want to be in the world. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just so huge is learning to understand how you function and what your um, your pitfalls are, what your what what your lifelines are, because it's really intriguing to me is that's something that I work with a lot of people is learning to actually trust those gut instincts, those, you know, that that intuition, those sudden rush of emotion. And actually a lot of people who've grown up in religion have been told, oh, that's not to be trusted. It's usually people outside of charismatic movements, right? Yeah. So people in charismatic, that's how you live your life constantly. And so it's, it's interesting how different people have different ex- explorations and different experiences. And then you have to go, okay, how am I going to respond to the very dark side of some of those things, right? Yeah. And, and some of that can be these huge rushes of emotion that, that lead to utter panic attack, right? Mm-hmm. So, oh, I'm going to have to learn to deal with that because that happens, right? Spiked emotion, surges of fear, adrenaline, what else, sorts of different stuff going on. That's part of being human good luck not ever having those so you gotta learn these things but it's amazing how different expressions of christianity can set us up in different ways for that um just fascinating because that's definitely less common um in my experience that people um have to suppress that as much as i'm trying to kind of help people tap into that in a sense because they Mm -hmm. constantly live kind of shutting that down you don't trust yourself you don't trust your intuition you don't trust your emotions and your feelings you know there's almost this shut down like you don't feel emotions you just live by thought by belief by faith um which is really fascinating to me but i've come from a charismatic background as myself and so i understand that there's a very flip side i mean that's why a lot of christians in a lot of conservative movements don't like the charismatics right they're just all Mm -hmm. led by their emotions and they're just flopping around on the floor because they don't know better and they're not using their heads and um, not trusting the word of god and um, that's so fascinating. So, I mean, 
you find yourself now. So that must have been quite a transitional. Because you said you say your husband um, trained as a pastor. So he was a qualified pastor. Is that right? And you guys yes, were running was, this thing. Was that what you were doing like full time? Like how, how were you making a living and stuff? Was that, I mean, we were, does anyone make a living running like, uh, you know, drop-in center basically? Basically, <laughs> yeah, but, we were like, well, for the first year, when we had the most people living with us, we were all actually pooling our income, like all right. communally. And so it'd just be kind of a weird rotation of random service industry jobs that people would get or gig gig economy stuff um right. to just keep us afloat and um yeah so that was it at the beginning i worked a bunch of service industry jobs while we did that and then as we were starting to transition out of that um i started i went to an alternative um alt- teaching certification program so like it's called Teach NOLA, um, which is similar to Teach for America. Um, so I did that and started teaching. Right. Started teaching special education. That was like, that was, that's was that been my job ever since in one way or another, either in education sure, sure. or disability advocacy or uh, coaching teachers. And I kind of found, like fell into that. I knew I would enjoy teaching, but also there was very much a sense of like, okay, we this is, this is not going to work forever. We need to figure out a source of income for ourselves. This will be steady and we'll have health benefits. Um, and I think I would like it and be good at it. And then Mark was doing this, a similar process on his own and went through a couple different jobs that, you know, fit in a couple ways and didn't in other ways. Um, he worked at a glass shop, uh, installing glass for a while, which is a handy skill that he retains. Mm. Um, and then I gave him, uh, I gave him a present one Christmas of a, uh, a semester of drawing lessons at a drawing school in new Orleans. Cause I knew that he always loved art and that kind of started him getting back interest interested in art as an adult. And, um, that started the tattooer journey. So oh, no. Yeah, we both had to kind of with our feet to the fire because we were having kids at this point had to figure out a source of income for ourselves Um, and ideally a source of income that wouldn't make us miserable, I guess. Um, And so purely by, I think, a combination of circumstances, privilege and luck, we, we ended up in some in some careers that we both really enjoy now. Um, so that's yeah, awesome. that was, that's really good. But when people, when I hear folks in the, in our deconstruction spheres online, um, I've seen a lot of really good conversations about like vocational existential chaos uh, that folks that are in formal ministry experience when they leave. Mm. Um, and I deeply feel that and connect to that a lot um especially yeah. for mark it can feel like no, it's, completely it's, starting it's, over it is completely starting over yeah yeah and and it is like uh it's a world that is so bubbled you know in such a unique weird kind of way that very few other like kind of 
like vocational choices that you make will bubble you as much as being kind of like on staff in a church or as a pastor, or even if you're starting your own thing, you like you, you create this little bubble for yourself where you, you don't tend to like, you know, be easily transferable into another career path. Yeah. Right? You know, like maybe, maybe there is some paths and I've seen some really interesting shifts. And I would say there's definitely a networking side to it that can make it easier when, when you are um, yeah. heavily involved in, in church and things like that, you, you tend to have more connections, which, you know, open up more opportunities and stuff, but it's, it's a scary thing. Like, again, like you, you know, talking with so many people going through this, it's a, it's a pretty terrifying process. And then you, you've got kids in the mix as well. And you're, and you're American. So you're thinking, Jesus, like if my kids get sick, like you know, what's happening <laughs> yeah. and like crazy things that people yeah. shouldn't have to worry about. Right. Um, but certain people around the world do. And, and so like, that's a terrifying kind of prospect. And I, I know people that stay in that world having deconstructed for years, some of them decade plus, because they go, well, I, to change career, my salary is going to drop so much. I won't be able to pay my mortgage. I've yeah. got a kid in college or I need to pay for my healthcare for my family or whatever it is. And they kind of just suck it up. And I'm like, dang, like, <laughs> That's yeah. not a fun existence for a lot of people. Some people manage it and, and, and even enjoy it, but that's intense, yeah. you know? And so that's amazing yeah. that you managed to kind of pivot in that way and kind of find some career paths that you really enjoy. And, yeah. We Sorry. did. Um, I think another reflection I had on that too is though, like, like we did land, we have landed in places where we're happy, um, but kind of along the way, especially for me, entering, um, this is such a big conversation, but like entering teaching in New Orleans charter schools and public charter schools. Um, I realized at some point, I think I was like in like a staff meeting, a big staff meeting of the whole CMO talking, uh, hearing the CMO leader, um, who is a white man, and we primarily serve black and brown students in our school district uh, or in the CMO and hearing him talk from the, uh, from the auditorium stage and kind of impart this vision to what we were doing. Mm. And I'm not going to get too specific about it, but basically like sitting, I think you can see where I'm going, like sitting in that audience as a staff person listening to this incredibly charismatic individual um, rally a large group of people around a set of principles that he believes are the answer to a problem. Um, I was like, oh shit, I've done it again. (laughs) (laughs) I've joined another cult. That's so Um, funny. Yeah. So at some point I realized, oh, like I'm actually very wired. Who knows if I would have been wired uh, towards being drawn to cults and to charismatic people otherwise, cause I was raised in it, but definitely because I was raised in it, I am wired this way. Right. Like I actually have to be aware of that and I need to possibly do some work around it because I have found myself in another, uh, group of people with probably not enough oversight or accountability, um, that's driven by charismatics and that has a very, and that has a very white savior mindset and that has a, a martyr complex. And mm-hmm. like, I have just jumped into another 
version of something that was very harmful to me and other people. Yeah. And, and I feel like I am at a place where I just am not sure when, if ever I will be ready to join another formal organization of some kind. Mm. Um, I think I'm in a season of like needing some deep, deep healing from sitting in folding chairs in fellowship halls or cafeterias or auditoriums and listening to a charismatic leader about anything. Um, That's just where I'm, where I'm at. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I recognize that in myself. I mean, one of my favorite things to do with my wife is watch um, like documentaries about cults. If there's ever a documentary about a cult, I am like, I am there. I am on it. I am here. But the terrifying thing is I'll watch it and I'm just like, oh, I want to join. Like yes, not, in a, so not in anything, but it's, it's that, um, it's the Shane Claiborne effect. I, I look at the beginning. I don't know if you've seen the Osho uh, documentary, yeah. the Wild West Country. And I watched the first couple episodes and I'm like, What's even wrong with this? This looks like heaven on earth. We're all hanging out. We're growing our own food. We're sustainable. We're good for the environment. We're off the grid. We love one another. We're kind. We get together. We we contemplate. We spend time doing intentional internal work. We learn how to relate to one another better and have better communication. (laughs) There's really sweet, like, get up. Let's be honest. You get to look cool. (laughs) Who doesn't want to wear robes? Um, Like, you know, the whole deal. And then, of course, they're like, okay, now we're going to try and kill the town. What? You know, like, I mean, it always goes sideways at some point where you're like, oh, we almost have it but there's mm-hmm. something in me that every time i come across a new talk i mean watching the flipping waco one that um, i can't remember how old it is it's quite an older one mm-hmm. um but uh i watched that one with my wife and i'm like i know how this ends but uh, god i do like the idea of this place i'd love to go look <laughs> for a little while and they were pretty radical and weird yeah. but i'm like oh they're quite i mean apart from the fact that we're all like kind of like no one's sleeping with each other apart from the main guy who sleeps with all our partners okay mm-hmm. that's weird but even that it was quite late in the whole you know movement right and you're just like there is something about a good cult that you're like oh it does it feels like belonging it feels like we're doing something there's purpose i think that's just a natural human response and i think when you look at different systems or institutes a school is a perfect place for that kind of that mm-hmm. that kind of drive that is good and healthy the belonging helping kids find their identity and rise up and and find a bit of structure in their life in a world that is quite chaotic and all these things that's a breeding ground for these these systems to come in and go i can breed here really well right whether they're the e coli of like the school or whatever white supremacy patriarchy whatever like that's not necessarily part of school system but it will do really well if you have a nice Mm -hmm. good kind of you know school boards and all parent teacher whatever on board that thing's going to just thrive yeah um, and so i think i guess it's just being aware of those those pitfalls but there, there's got to be something i don't know i just say this every time i watch a cult documentary i'm like there's got to be something here can we do this can we do this in a better way without what if we just <laughs> a- agree that if anyone wants to live we won't try and kill them how about right. as rule number one is you can leave and no one's going to kill you that's the manifesto like- is really good <laughs> right, yeah. It's immediately sets you up as a, a bit of a weird cult anyway, straight away. You're like, oh, this is cultish. We've, we've got a full-blown manifesto. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I don't know, but I think there is a, a thing, just as you're saying that propensity, I'm like, oh, I have that as well. But part of me is like, is it, ah, is that just part of being human? Is that part of belonging? Is that part of 
I don't know, something quite healthy as well. Um, I don't know. Uh, but yeah. I'm not saying those components that come in, the systemic kind of things that infiltrate, obviously. Not so yeah, much. I think, I, I know there's researchers that have done, that have like identified trends of what personality traits, I'm sure, like mm. make people more cult susceptible, but, and I don't know what that is, but like. Actually, they could just do a personality profile on me probably. Right, basically. <laughs> but I feel like, you know, I feel like cults, tap into, like you were saying, some of our most, um, some of the most beautiful things about human beings, Mm. our desire for community, our creative imagination to like imagine a better world and, and our optimism to believe that that is within reach. Like all of those are, you know, I'm I'm mad at myself every time I realize I've done it (laughs) and I've like, gotten suckered in some way to some ideology that I thought was like the thing, but also to be gentle, to be gentle with the both of us. Mm. um, Those are some of my favorite parts about myself. I don't want to lose those things. No, I don't want to live in a world that doesn't believe in a grand hopeful future of everything being better. If I was being in more unity, if I was being more loving and compassionate and I don't know, not nuking each other and, you know, constantly fighting over each other and trying to kill the left or the right or the in and the, I'm like, I I don't want to live in a world that doesn't look beyond that with a little bit of hope. Um, But I I am going to buy in about three seconds. If you can present it to me well, Um, I will move to your commune. I am in. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, No, it's funny too. I think more and more the past couple of years, I realized that all most of the things that I was wanting out of those communal living experiences, those intentional Christian communities and like with all their rules about the chore wheel and who does the dishes and like what we believe and what we don't. So many of the things that I was looking for, I've without, without a ton of intentionality, some intentionality, but I have those things now in an organic Mm. community of people that like was born naturally through the friends I make, the people I find who share my values that I develop like authentic friendships and relationships with. I actually have that now. Like I have people, neighbors and people that live outside my neighborhood where like, if I, cook a big pot of gumbo and I have a ton left. There's like three different people that I'm really close with that I could like go bring it to their porch. I know I could, Mm. or who would do the same for me. There's a group of people that will help with the childcare of my kids and who I, they know I will help with the childcare of theirs. Um, And who I have like the, the agnostic version of Bible studies with where like we come together at the dining room table and we have a meal or we have some beer and we like talk about the deep stuff of life and we are vulnerable with each other and we support each other. And it's like really beautiful. Um, And I almost didn't realize that I had it until, you know, until you have, like an out of body moment when you're at the dining room table with right. everybody you're like, 
oh, this is it. It's happening. Yeah, it's all happening. Um, so that's felt yeah. really good in the past couple years mm. since leaving Christianity because I know, I recognize and know that like, that's really hard to find. And a lot of people, that's like the number one um, the number one thing that I hear from ex-Christians or folks that leave any sort of religious community is missing community. Like even if they miss nothing else, they miss a community Absolutely. of people. Yeah. Um, and as much as we can like shit all over the church and how terrible and evil and awful, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, of course we can find all that stuff. Community is there and it's something beautiful about it. And there's something meaningful about it. And even if they all turn their back on you in three seconds, if you say, Oh, I don't live in hell or I kind of like gay people or whatever it is that like is enough for them to go, all right, you're out. We, we don't want you anymore. There is a community there. There is a belonging there. There is a, a love of, of some sort of some kind there um, that people can say, well, it's very conditional. It's like, well, it's actually in a lot of areas, very unconditional there's just a few conditions in there that you crossed, uh, but we all have conditions, right? I mean, on some level, someone probably will cross your conditional thing and you go, Oh, I'm taking a step back now. Um, but so there is this thing, you know, talking with people, especially people from, um, I, I just, uh, I'm releasing tomorrow podcast with um, Bethany Geyser, who is deeply entrenched in the kind of Mennonite community. Mm-hmm. And, terrible situation to be in because it's like your whole world um but they do community really well whatever you say about it or the mormons you know talk to mormons that come out and you're like i wouldn't like to have that experience but you know what i kind of would like to have a mormon family my god they are like tight you know they they do everything and everything together and they're there for each other and um and i think that is a really painful thing to replace because a lot of people outside of churches don't have something like that is something that you've got there that you're describing we have something like that in our community here we've we've just built a community around us i've meet people at the pub i meet people at the gym i've I, people that were in church that have left church um along with me or after me or before me or whatever like but there's people that i've got in my life that i'm like these are my friends that i would take bullets for them we do have the deepest of deep conversations we're more real we're more vulnerable than anyone i've ever really been with um and yet that isn't common for a lot of people outside of something like church because the bowling club aren't that tight or whatever, you know, right. whatever groups that kind of form um, naturally. And I, I think it's a really painful thing, kind of like it's, it's not a, you switch from one into the other, you know, there just does feel like there's this process. Like, what was that like for you? Obviously, you were in a community where some of the people were kind of going through their own kind of deconstructions as well. Did you did you? traverse that with people did, did some of those people come with you or was it very much hunting for new people or how did you go about building that community it was a little bit of both so there's definitely a good handful of people from our former church community who ended up deconstructing as well who we're still really close with um, and have connected like on the other side of things connected mm-hmm. with um, but a lot of it was building on relationships we already had that were outside of the church um, and like kind of connecting with, I mean, God bless them. My, my queer friends who were never religious, the, like that community were so patient with me, probably knew I was queer the entire time. 
Um, but when I was deeply fundamentalist, like there was always, there's always a barrier in that friendship. There's always like some stuff I know we can't talk about. And there's always like some kind of wall up there. And so really after, after leaving religion, it's like that wall is gone. Like now there's literally no reason that we can't be as close as we want to be. There is nothing we can't talk about because I'm not terrified that I'm going to have to uphold (laughs) that. I'm going to have to like state some doctrine that invalidates your humanity uh, because I love you. And like, so it was really leaning into a lot of those friendships in a new, deeper way. And then a lot of it became very intentional and formalized on my part because that's like some, I have, I have like my paid work that is my actual job and then my passion projects that I do outside of that. And so a lot of those are, are very much about intentionally building ex-fundamentalist community, particularly queer ex-fundamentalist community through art and creativity and storytelling. Mm. So I've expanded that community by creating uh, a live storytelling event that I do in New Orleans. We'll see when I do it live next uh, with COVID, (laughs) but um, that's called Sanctuary. And it's kind of like, you're familiar with the moth. It's that style of public storytelling. Right. Um, But always like themed around leaving bad religion. Nice. Oh man, I would be there in a millisecond because I love that kind of, uh, thing. Yeah. We've got a little bit of some of those things coming up in the UK. We just feel like I feel like we're behind in some of these kind of like um, storytelling kind of commute, like the math or whatever. Like we don't really have stuff like that. We've got a couple. My friends invited me to one recently. Uh, well, before COVID, like when was that? Recent, like, like a year yeah. ago, probably. Um, <laughs> and I didn't get to, I didn't get to go, and then um, and then kind of COVID kicked off. But I love stuff like that. Like I just think there's yeah. so much power in in yeah telling our stories and so yeah so sorry that, i interrupt you but i got excited by the no thought. no that's okay <laughs> about okay. one specifically built around leaving religious communities and stuff as well i'm like oh my god and um, you know you'd think you'd think that that's an incredibly niche thing to build an entire storytelling event series i would have but, <laughs> but uh you know we've done like four now and we have not run out of content yet like I bet. oh, oh my god well um uh, well, I do like two podcasts a week that are like an hour and a half to three hours yeah, of people telling their stories and it never gets old. So <laughs> I mean, like, so a really cool thing as well. Mm-hmm. A really cool thing that happened as a result of Sanctuary actually is I had the otherworldly experience of the, mo- the most recent one that was in person before COVID where a dear friend who was with me in college campus ministry where we were both on the worship team together, um, who also has left religion or left fundamentalism. I'm not sure about religion entirely and, uh, and has come out as queer, um, did like came and performed at sanctuary. And so this person that I had been on a worship team with, um, was actually did a, a, a musical performance, um, cause she's a musician And so she wrote a song specifically for Sanctuary. It was beautiful. It's called Never Change. And and that led to a kind of second 
incarnation of some of those same ideas. And that led to the current project that I'm working on that's called My Queer is Sacred. So we launched that in June where I asked like the wider online community to respond to the prompt, My Queer is Sacred because, and started kind of collecting those responses. Um, And then we, uh, the latest thing we've done is make a special video project where um, it is set to that exact song um, by my friend, Joy Clark, who who wrote that song for Sanctuary. So that's coming out on National Coming Out Day, October 11th. and it's just one of the ways that that this community has grown and that I've found a ton of joy and purpose in, in being a part of building that community. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like, yeah. it's been so part sad. organic and part intentional, but, mm. but it's worked so far. Yeah. I mean, it's just so exciting. I mean, like you're saying like this, this, little it can feel like such a niche when when you're going through this and you it, it can feel like god i there's maybe a couple other people going through this but like i feel utterly alone especially if you're in a bubble i mean i know you're probably in like nirvana in a sense as far as uh if you're going to be in louisiana be in new orleans um i was in louisiana earlier this year and i was not in new orleans and uh it was uh-huh. like whoa there is only a handful of people going through this here um and yeah it's still not at all. I was in, um, God, where was I? I do this every time. Whenever I bring up somewhere, I was in, um, uh, Monroe up in, um, I guess that's in the okay. north of yeah. right. Um, but like not a big area. I don't know how many people live there. hundred thousand people, something like that. I don't know. A, yeah. A decent sized city, but it's not, it's not huge. Right. And I'm like there with like a group of like, maybe like eight, 10 people that have invited me to come out there uh, and just hanging out with them in the evenings, having lots of whiskey, lots of whiskey so much like literally and just non-stop it was amazing um but more than i was used to <laughs> um, uh-huh. as someone that works from home and rarely goes out very much anyway it was a lot uh, but one day we're at a coffee shop and someone comes up to me and they're like i'm really sorry to bother you but are you phil dry still and i'm like what is happening and like that's never happened to me before i'm not like yeah. on any level no one knows who i am um and i'm like what the hell is happening? They're like, oh, we follow you on Instagram. Like, I didn't know you were going to be here in Monroe. And I'm like, oh. how does, and so like, it feels like there's this tiny little like world where there's no one here. And then you can be in a city of like hundred thousand people and you can bump into other people that are also deconstructing. And these two groups, there was a whole group of people, two groups, basically. I knew of one, they didn't, they didn't even know who each other were. And suddenly it's like, oh, we have a whole bunch more people that we can connect with. And we probably would never, ever found each other connected, come across each other. Like, it just it makes me so happy when I hear of projects like, you know, like Sanctuary, like what you're doing with My Career is Sacred, anything like that, that helps people connect and realize, oh, this tiny niche, like you could be like, I, I love niches because they're like so funny once you kind of get a bit more global, right? And so yeah. like, people are like, oh yeah, I like um, model uh matchstick boats uh, of uh boats that are from 1830 to 1840 and you're like dude you're gonna die alone you know what i mean like and then you go online and you're like oh there's like a hundred thousand of you what is happening right so now <laughs> you know <laughs> um, and so how much more so people that grew up religious that are not anymore people that grew up with a very strict rigid kind of faith and spirituality which maybe isn't so strict and rigid anymore like that's a massive group if we actually take pause and think about it 
Um, and so there's so much potential for us to be crossing paths and to be connecting and to be having these rich community experiences. Um, if, if we have eyes to see, if we have the um, visionaries like you that are kind of putting things together as well. Um, you know, it works out well for you. And I'm sure it was in some level, it was a very selfish thing of like, oh, I can meet lots of people. Um, but I'm sure as well as a very selfless thing of like, hey, I want people to connect. I want people to have space to be heard, to be seen. Um, and that's a, a really exciting and beautiful thing. And so thank you. Thank you for doing that. And so if people are in, is that just solely something that you're doing in the New Orleans area? Or is that something that you kind of want to kind of um, no, I'd like to grow beyond that? Yeah, I'd like to, um, especially the My Queer Sacred project. Um, I'm open to that growing in a bunch of different ways. But right now we're releasing the video that I hope is encouraging to folks on National Coming Out Day. And then mm. um, we're also launching MyQueerSacred.com, which is a very simple website, but it's basically a digital, uh, a digital mural where I'm going to continue uploading and people can submit uh, responses to that same prompt, my queer is sacred because, and it'll just be kind of a living digital document that will collect more and more responses. Um, and people can also submit art by queer artists, um, music, videos, whatever media uh, Padlet will let me upload, um, you know, I'll add to it. So that's awesome. I'm excited about that being a way for anyone anywhere to connect uh, and find community that way. And, and then just hoping that by putting, <laughs> by putting a book of very, very uh, ex-religious poetry out in the world, um, that that will be meaningful to some folks as well and, and build community that way. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. That's beautiful. I, I love that. Like, to tell me, tell me more about storytelling and how that's been formative for you in this process. Cause it sounds like that's been a real avenue for you to explore your, your spirituality and, and maybe your evolving, devolving, unraveling, whatever that has looked like for you uh, spiritually. Cause, cause you don't, um, you're not black and white. I'm an atheist. There's nothing, you know, it's, it sounds like you're saying you're agnostic. You just, don't know um do you use your your writing to explore what you don't know and and what you might know or uh whatever that looks like for you yeah i do i i use i use poetry and writing to definitely explore things that i don't know and that i'm not sure about i also use it to go back and revisit and often subvert Bible stories that haunt me. Um, so I have a lot of poetry in the collection that is that are from biblical stories of characters that either either I always loved, but it like wasn't the right character. You weren't supposed to like that character, um, or characters that I was immensely curious about that mm. we just don't learn that much about them. Um, mostly women characters in the Bible course, that we don't. Yeah. Know about. Or or like difficult, difficult stories that had really difficult to swallow implications or meanings. Um, I have two different poems about uh, Abraham and Isaac and like that story of, of him almost sacrificing him and God stopping him. Uh, so yeah, I use writing to give myself permission to go back to those stories from 
from my Christian life and investigate them and give myself like creative permission to play with them. Um, and in doing that, I feel like writing that poetry about those biblical stories actually has been more meaningful to me and has taught me more about humanity and how humans relate to each other than just reading the Bible ever did. Um, and that's been like a huge part of my personal healing experience. Um, so yeah, I definitely use it to explore those ideas. I have, I think the, the longest one in the collection is kind of an agnostic love letter to the universe and science. And I wrote it after visiting the Griffith observatory in LA. Um, and just like getting to see the surface of the sun through a solar telescope. And they have this incredible staircase that goes down to the lower level where there's like a, um, not a shadow box. What do you call it? Like there's stuff behind glass, (laughs) um, all the way down the hallway. And it's, it's a scaled history of the universe. So like from as, as far as we can guess, there's, it starts with the big bang and then it's scaled so that when you get to the bottom, it's like present day and the, the gap. It's like an atom on the stair, you know, it's like, this is you, (laughs) like, this is, this is all of humanity. Um, wow. How did you feel? Go- Cause I've heard uh, people have very different responses to going down there. Uh, I've not been, I, I, I always wanted to, but I only was in LA twice and that was more than enough for me to be honest. I didn't really like LA. I'm sorry to people watching or listening to this from LA. Um, but uh, it's just, it's too big. Uh, you know, if you shrink it down a bit, I, I'd love LA. I love portions of LA, but the fact I had to go somewhere else was the part that made it terrible. Um, but I never did make it, but, I've heard people that go down there that have very different experiences. So, I mean, how did that kind of impact you seeing, seeing the scale of this, what we're in, what we find ourselves in, and then seeing like how you, you know, fit into that. Like, what did that do for you? Cause that can bring up a lot. Like uh, maybe it didn't do much for you. I don't know, but um, I'm always yeah. intrigued by how people kind of like, especially people coming from a background of Christianity where like, you know, you're it, you know, that's all that matters. This is it. We're in the end times, the most important times. You're the the person that God's going to somehow do something through, or I don't know, like, and suddenly you're like, oh, interesting. This is it's a big story here. Yeah. It, so if, if I would have visited that place when I was the, the most devout fundamentalist Christian, it would have been a terrible experience and it would have been horrifying to me. And it would have brought up so many emotions. Um, And it would have been very challenging for all the reasons you just said. But when I went um, as an agnostic, it was so beautiful. It was the closest thing I have ever had to what I imagine a pilgrimage experience is. Mm. Because I, I hiked like several miles up a mountain, which is also weird to me because New Orleans is below sea level. We don't have elevation. Right. So like I did this really strenuous hike alone, completely alone um, in silence to get to this place. And, and then to go through it again, alone and in solitude with just mm-hmm. my thoughts, which is also rare because I'm a parent of two. So I- um, to get to experience a place like that, 
and the scale of the universe and so many things about it in solitude with just me and my inner voice and my sense of wonder was a profound, one of the most profound experiences of my life. Mm. Um, and I found it beautiful. Uh, it didn't, you know, the, the existential scope of all of that didn't scare me anymore. And it was, it felt really lovely to be in a crowd of humans who were all experiencing that same sense of wonder at our place in this very large universe. Um, and that was really beautiful. And and I loved it. It was, it was awesome. No regrets awesome. <laughs> about the Griffith Observatory. That's um, so good. Oh, it's a good review. It's a good review. It's a very, yes, five Stick stars. Stick up on Yelp, you know. <laughs> I will leave with the best Yelp review. Um, yeah. yeah. 10 and out of 10 feel- did not give existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I feel like in a wider sense, that's kind of, that's one of the ways that I try to explain what deconstruction is like and what post fundamentalism is like to folks that weren't raised that way mm. or didn't experience it is, is I have to explain to them that like, I don't, I don't have to be afraid of new information anymore mm. because when, when I was fundamentalist, it felt like, and it was, I was living in a, in the constant state of concern about encountering new information about the world that might contradict right. my beliefs. Yeah. I was terrified of watching nature documentaries or like science documentaries because I was brought up uh, like with strict creationism, right. like young earth, all that stuff. And, and like, I just don't, it's, the best kind of freedom to feel like you can truly greet any new information with curiosity rather than fear. Like we could have an alien invasion tomorrow. Hopefully it would be nice and they would be kind, but like we (laughs) could literally help us now, please aliens come and save (laughs) us. But that could happen tomorrow. And I wouldn't have to have an existential crisis about it. Like I could be like, okay, that's a new thing I know about the universe now. Um, And that is a very lovely place of security for me. It's a very painful, uh, I don't think about this very often, but I guess on some level I was constantly, because I did seek out new, I love new stuff and fascinating stuff, but like there's this pressure whenever something new is introduced that you go, all right, well now I need to make it fit the box and now I need to answer it away and now I need to square it up with X, Y, or Z. And so even if there's, irrefutable proof that evolution is the true or or real i have to somehow now reapproach the whole bible and reinterpret the entire genesis story so that it points to evolution and then maybe you can do that i mean there's plenty of old um old earth creationists and 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 people that incorporate creationism with evolution i mean evolution even now there's people that hold to evolution that is somehow being directed um, within some sort yeah. of quantum component and stuff. I think there's a lot of great arguments to that. And there's a lot of great scientists that, that, that um, are, are saying maybe there's something beyond that that's quantum evolution or, or punctuated evolution and these kind of different concepts. Um, but like, you know, there's this, now I'm spending like four weeks of my life researching evolution so I can fit it in my 
Christian marks. And it's just tiring, right? Every time you get some new piece of information, some new thing to try and, yeah, God, that's a lot. And you have to, because if you can't answer it, well, now I'm going through a whole existential crisis and everything's going to fall apart, right? So no one wants to have to do that by uh, by choice. Um, and so, yeah, no, that's that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Uh, I love it. And I, I feel like I felt that freedom too as a writer um, where I much prefer being an agnostic writer because I can also write whatever I want now. Um, mm. Whereas I used to write a lot more fiction and short stories and that's what I have, I have an MFA in, in fiction writing. And so I did a lot of writing in that program mm. when I was still a Christian and felt so much pressure to like make sure that my stories point thematically to the right ideas and you know people can't end up characters can't end up too happy if they're doing the wrong thing and like it's funny it yeah I, and those are the worst stories <laughs> like they are the worst terrible <laughs> um, kind of cookie cutter like yeah and it, it's funny because i would end up producing two types of stories shitty stories that I knew I could show my parents and good stories that I never could. No. (laughs) Um, And that was, yeah. So now like we all get to be hopefully good stories and, and writing that I'm proud of because I, it's the same idea. I don't have to be afraid of like what I put on the page and people can decide for themselves what they mean, what it means to them. Um, And it doesn't have to fit a box. That is, I mean, if there's, it's fascinating that, I mean, any religion is ultimately a story that we all kind of um, agree upon, really, at the end of the day. Um, but it is fascinating that some of these stories are just deeply uncompelling when we kind of like um, stop and evaluate it. But society, I mean, we have been dragged along by these stories for a long time, but it is weird, you know, some of these concepts of like life should be perfect and absolutely wonderful and tick 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 and everything goes along just fine if you're a good christian then good things happen bad no one really wants to live in that world i think if we actually are deeply honest with ourselves we we all kind of need a bit of pain suffering confusion questions doubts uncertainty all that stuff. If you read a book without any of those components, like you said, it would just be the shittest book ever, right? You know, you need a character that's going, I don't know what's happening in life. You know, you need a character that loses a loved one or gets sick or something happens, right? You need some ups and downs to a good story. Um, I I constantly remind myself, Pete Holmes, who I love, I don't know if you're familiar with Pete Holmes. um, He, he has this kind of concept of seeing his life as a narrative and, and, and almost asking himself, like, if today was an episode of my TV show of me, would it be a good episode? And the truth is, when we sit and think about, oh, tomorrow I've got um, a podcast I'm recording and I've got to do some stuff on Instagram and then I've got this and then we'll go for a meal with my wife and then this and then we'll go to bed. And you look at that, if that was an episode, it would just be crap, right? No one would want to watch the show at all right? You're going to need some ups and downs. You're going to need moments where the main character is like pulling their hair out and having a freak out because they're like, how am I going to deal with this? But then they do deal with it. And you're like, yeah, yes, you go Pete or whatever. Right. And, and so I, I love that kind of concept because um, it kind of reminds us of actually, these are good things. These are, it is exciting. It is supposed to have ups and downs. Um, so it's a bit of a tangent, but uh, I'm just intrigued. And I'm always fascinated by people that, that, live in those worlds of storytelling and and crafting these kind of things because 
you know better than most the, the truth of that, right? Because you, you've sat yeah. down and written that nice story and it reads like a, a, a five-year-old story, you know, for their homework or something. And you're like, this is terrible. Yeah, it does. Yeah, we're, my thesis advisor and like one of my writing mentors would always prompt us in writing stories to constantly be asking, what's at stake? What's at stake mm-hmm. for the character? What's at stake? And and I think that is because, yeah, like human beings are compelled by challenge and risk. And, and that, that does make a good story. Like I was just thinking about that the other day. Cause I just um, started, uh, started like exercising regularly again at, um, at a gym where it's not, it's not CrossFit anymore because they divested from CrossFit after CrossFit did some messed up stuff, but it is a similar style of workout where like it's gamified. Okay. And, and I realize that that's like what I enjoy about it. I enjoy the challenge of it. I enjoy yeah. the gamification of it and was thinking a lot about how our brains are wired that way. Um, how mm. that's also how I can get my daughter to be interested in math is if it is gamified and there is a, and, but we need the appropriate amount of challenge, like too much right. and we get fatalistic oh, screw it. I'm done. and too little and we're bored, but there's this zone of challenge yeah. that we appreciate in, in stories and in, in life um, mm. that, that I try to like stay in tune with. Somewhere in that window for sure. In that window. Yeah. Wow. So do you, uh, do you put out much of your writing online? Is that something that you, you put out? I guess we probably need to wrap up because we're coming up for a couple of hours and I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I'm thinking of your poor friends that have taken your kid, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> um, is giving them a run for their money. Um, I know, I know. Um, but I'm just thinking like um, places people can connect with you and stuff like that. Like um, what's, what's some of your projects? I mean, I, I've noted down as we go, you know, you've got your, um, my career is sacred.com and, and I guess all that sort of stuff is kind of launching around coming out day. Do you say on the 11th of October? Yes. The my career so, I mean, sacred stuff is, um, yeah. is national day, um, which is October 11th. And then October 25th is the pre-ordered launch for um, my poetry book, which is called ordinary time uh, being put out by tilted house press in new Orleans. And so on the 11th, you can see a really cool video at myqueersacred.com. And on the 25th, you can order my book at um, through nikkimayu.net or through Googling Tilted House. Um, but yeah, those awesome. are the things that I kind of have on, on the burner right now. I do, I put a decent amount of my poetry on my Instagram. That's my only social media account. And that's where sure. I'm active. Um, I'm at at Nikki.Mayu, which is a Cajun name, and it's M-A-Y-E-U-X. Um, so yeah, I put a good amount of poetry out there, uh, and that's where you can find me. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I'll make sure we'll get all those links in the show notes. And I think I'm looking at my calendar now, and um, I was planning on bringing out your podcast on the 22nd, but I could shuffle it with the 26th, if that's better, bring it out right after your book goes up, yeah. for it, and we can launch it to try and like push people so people need to go and get um what was called ordinary time ordinary time ordinary time people need to go get it 
Um, and obviously, I mean, the, the ship will have sailed, but the website will still be there. My, my crew is sacred, um, you know, um, and I will make sure I, I post about that on uh, October 11th and stuff as well. So make sure you uh, um, remind you. me if I, if I haven't, um, for whatever okay. reason, give me a prize because I'll definitely want to share that stuff and I, I want to see it as well. Um, but I've been following your stories the last few days. You've been sharing a little clips that I guess you're going to put in there, like little quotes and things like that. And I've um, been really enjoying those. And and yeah, I, I just enjoy what you're putting out on Instagram. I enjoy what you're doing. Um, I think you're a fascinating person. Uh, you are a brilliant communicator, which I guess you, you tend to get when you study writing. Um, it's, a, it's a plus. I mean, I guess not everyone <laughs> studies writing is a great yeah. communicator. I've, I've met some people with, uh, you know, doctorates in English that um, I'm, I'm less uh, impressed by. So um, yeah, no, it's, it's great what you're doing. And I love what you're doing with things like trying to gather community and, and things like that as well, which is, is really exciting. Yeah. And, um, and you say you're planning on kind of starting that back up post COVID um, in yes. some way, shape or form, more storytelling. And Yeah. Um, I, the hope is to go back to regular shows in new Orleans and eventually um, eventually take it on the road uh, and bring it to other cities where there's uh, where there's community there that wants it. Um, and connect with folks that way. So that's that's for later. Um, And for now, we'll we'll connect online. Um, And yeah, folks can please submit a response to My Queer is Sacred because Mm -hmm. I would love that. That would, it's been really lovely to see everybody's responses. And then like for every response, I get like all these DMs of people saying that it resonated with them and that it was meaningful to them, um, which is is the work, right? Like that's the whole thing. That's Uh, that's the hope. That's it. So. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and it was, it was really lovely to talk about all these ideas with someone as nerdy as me about them. Excellent. Well, no, I absolutely loved it. It's a privilege. I really appreciate you giving me so much for your time. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll catch up online, um, soon, but yeah, thank you so much, Nikki. I love you. All right. Have a good night. Bye. So that was Nikki Mayu. I would encourage you go give her a follow on Instagram. It's Nikki N I K K I dot Mayu M A Y E U X. Link in that will be in the show notes. There's also a link in the show notes to myqueerissacred.com, which is her project that she just talked about. I would encourage you go check it out. It's a beautiful project, really fantastic, um, and something that uh, many of you would probably love to get involved with. And so I encourage you to do that. Um, another project you can get involved with is the deconstructionnetwork.com. If you are going through faith deconstruction, if you are going through a process of evolving your faith, devolving your faith, radically shifting in your faith, um, it can be very lonely, very isolating. And the deconstructionnetwork.com is a resource completely free that helps you find other people going through that process in your local area. They may not believe identically, they may not um, believe the same things or or be on exactly the same path, but they are probably coming out of very similar things. And that can be a very um, important thing to have people around you to understand the process you're going through and the pain that you're going through. Um, and, and are not going to just jump to demonizing you like many friends, family, church communities might do when you first deconstruct. And so um, do check that out. If you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling a bit lonely, the deconstructionnetwork.com um, is very likely going to be someone in your area um, or many people in your area that you can connect with and hopefully feel a little bit less isolated. Um, if you appreciate what I'm doing, everything I do is free. The podcast is the resources, deconstruction network, the grace course, different things like that. Um, talking with people that are going through their, their deconstruction. If you want to talk with me, please message me on Instagram. I'd love to chat. 
Um, if you appreciate all that, you can support what I'm doing over on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash phildrysdale or phildrysdale.com slash partner if you wish to give um, outside of Patreon platform uh, a little bit more of your money ends up in my uh, pocket. If you go outside of Patreon, they take about 8%. Um, and I think regular payment processes take about three. So it, it doesn't add up to much, but it but it probably adds up in the long run. Um, if you'd like to support me through those mechanisms, um, that would be amazing. There's never any need for any of that. Everything I do is free. Um, but as a thank you, you get access to a private discussion group. You get access to monthly Zoom calls and things like that. Um, and it would be lovely to uh, connect with you in those pl platforms and areas as well. Um, all right, that's enough from me. I love every one of you and I'll see you in the next podcast. Peace.